On this episode of Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by aviation analyst and pilot Brian Foley. He tells us about the latest trends in business aviation, his predictions for Cirrus aircraft, and what it's like to get current after 15 years away from the cockpit. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. Remember to visit sporties.com slash podcast for today's show links and complete archives. And if you like Pilot's Discretion, please subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. Today, I'm joined by Brian Foley, a man who has been around aviation for over 40 years in a wide variety of roles. He started out as a flight test engineer at Boeing, then went on to a 20-year career at Falcon as director of marketing before founding Brian Foley Associates, where he provides market research and forecasting for investors in aerospace companies. He's also an instrument-rated private pilot. Brian, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Hello, John. Glad to be here. You're a longtime observer of the business aviation industry, both from the inside and the outside. And this is a segment that really experienced an unprecedented boom since the pandemic. But some of the headlines in 2023 weren't quite as great. There was the near collapse of Wheels Up. They lost almost a billion dollars before getting bailed out, more or less, by Delta Airlines. So what do you think the state of the market is, especially for fractional and charter right now? Was Wheels Up the canary in the coal mine, or is that just a badly managed business? In a way, it's a canary in the coal mine. And I'll tell you how that is in a moment. But overall, the business aviation industry is going gangbusters right now. Um, during COVID, um, after an initial pause, like all aviation, where everyone was grounded, um, first time private aircraft users started discovering that they could get to where they wanted to go without having to go to the crowds and the airports and sitting with 200 and their best friends in a, in a aluminum tube for three and a half hours. And if there was even a schedule for an airline to go where they were going. Um, so those with the means um, sought out um, aircraft charter initially because the, the boundary, the, uh, the barriers to entry are pretty low there. And they tried it for the first time. And it might have just been a little trip from, you know, Teterboro to West Palm or something to see the grandkids. But nonetheless, um, it became quite a thing to the point where private aviation became so popular that a number of things happened. Um, first, some fractional providers and charter operators simply quit taking new business. We're, we're not a mass transportation um, system um, and not, not designed that way. And there are limits to how, how many people you can take. Um, so immediately the, uh, the used aircraft inventory started to dwindle down as first time users discovered that and, uh, gobbled those up. The, the new aircraft producers did pretty well too, with big backlogs, um, during that time. So it, it was just a crazy time in aviation. Um, so fast forward to today and things are normalizing, um, from where they'd been. It's not so crazy. People are catching their breath. They're staffing up. Um, they're getting their operations in order. Um, what I like to tell people is that e even though there is a big flood into private aviation, all those people aren't going to stay long-term. So, some will go back to their economy plus in the airlines. Um, they've been a little humbled by the $20,000 ticket from that Teterboro to <laughs> Uh, West Palm trip one way, um, and and uh, now that there's alternatives, dependable ones with the airlines, they'll they'll go that route instead. Um, so going forward in the future, I estimate that 
the business aviation industry got about a 10% jolt that, that'll always be there. It, it, that the baseline for business aviation um, business volume has forever increased by 10% over what it would have been with, without this, uh, this, this mass rush of new people coming in. So as a result, um, there'll always be um, 10% more utilization of business aviation. So that's the number of takeoff and landings going forward. Those gas providers will pump 10% more gas than they would have if there were, hadn't been COVID. Um, charter and fractional operators will be busy by at least uh, 10%. But but there is a normalizing. The, the fastest decrease in business jet usage we see now is with the charter operators. And it's for that very reason I said to begin with is that it's the lowest barrier to entry. There's not a lot of skin in the game. If you use charter, you can just use it once and walk away. And that's the segment that we see falling the fastest, but it's still above 2019 levels, um, you know, before COVID. So it's going to normalize to that plus plus 10% eventually. So um, all's good in business jet land. The number of used aircraft are starting to increase again to more typical levels. But again, I'd argue that um, when, it, when it does stop growing the inventory, it'll still be probably 10% less <laughs> inventory to choose from and then had been in the past because there's simply more people in the system now. And the order books at the business jet OEMs have slowed down a bit. They're still very good. At one time, they were cooking, cooking along at two to three times um, book to bill, it's called. So for every airplane they delivered, they get another two or three orders. And, and those days are since gone, and it's closer to one-to-one. One, one goes out the factory, and they, they bring another order in, which is a nice balance. Um, so that, that's where we are today. Now, that's not to say that recovering for, from COVID, there haven't been a few um, casualties along the way. And you had mentioned wheels up. And is that the canary in the coal mine? Um, yes, it is a canary in a coal mine, but only for specific type companies, which wheels up was. And that is um, younger companies. And I, I know they've, they've been around, you know, a length of time, but not a terribly long time. Um, so it's younger companies that are highly leveraged, just have a ton of debt. And suddenly we're in a situation, let's take wheels up, where I mentioned charters coming down, you know, the types of people that would use wheels up. Um, the cost of interest rates have gone up. So the capital they need to borrow is a lot more expensive now. And it's putting these type of companies um, in a situation where, yeah, they're, they're just uh, having cash flow problems and having to go out um, to investors for a lifeline. And fortunately for um, Wheels Up, um, Delta Airlines, who had been a, a partner in, in Wheels Up at one time, um, pretty much gathered up some investors, came forward and came to the rescue. And we'll, we'll see how that experiment goes in the, in the days to come. Do you think there's a model there moving forward with Delta or is that just a marriage of convenience that was a bailout or is there actually something to be said for integrating airlines who are trying to get business travelers and integrate that in some type of private aviation mix? Yeah, of course, there's a strategy internally at Delta and that's to channel their high net worth customers from wheels up over to their first class at Delta and vice versa. So just being able to capture um, those additional um, ticket buyers or, or, or program participants in, in wheels up. Um, I'm, I'm a little concerned though, longer term though, because at the end of the day, 
Delta is an airline. They, they are built for mass transportation and that's sticking to their knitting should really be over on the airline end where they need to have full attention and not have their resources diluted um, by something with the wheels up. Um, we won't know until the economy suddenly cools and we, we know airlines are very cyclical. The business is up and down, very sharply up and down. And the next um, downturn, which is inevitable, I, I can't predict when, um, it'll be interesting to see Delta's resolve um, in wheels up going forward. I think it'll be interesting to see whether these stories, not to mention the higher interest rates you, you talked about, give investors pause about other aerospace deals. You mentioned that wheels up and some of these other younger companies had really taken a lot of, I would say, outside money from non-traditional funders of aviation business. And the industry that comes to mind for me is some of the EV tall or urban air mobility companies who are likewise on a similar path, raising a lot of money. We've talked about EV tall aircraft on this podcast before from a technical standpoint, but from the investment or business plan standpoint, do you think some of the, the damage that's been done by Wheels Up and other similar headlines, is that going to give investors pause about some of these next generation companies? It will poison the well a little bit. And it's happened in the past in the private aviation industry um, by Eclipse um, Aviation back in the day, who was coming out with this VLJ or very light jet. Um, investors poured, um, you know, over a billion dollars in that, only to end up with a you know smoking bowl in the ground. <laughs> didn't didn't work out very well. And investors have a a, lo a long memory, and the dollars really weren't considered for business aviation or general aviation for, for many years to come on that scale. More recently, though, I guess memories did get erased, and along came um, EV tolls with a promise of blackening the skies with thousands of these Jetson-type um, air taxis shuttling, um, gosh, three or four people from point to point in, in cities. And at the time that concept came out, or at least gained traction, Investors were looking for a place to park large quantities of money in an investment because there was no place to park capital to earn any kind of interest rates. So they were kind of um, reaching beyond their traditional investment ports and, and discovering aviation and uh, maybe without full knowledge, pouring a lot of money in there. Um, what investors lack sometimes is the knowledge of just how long and how regulated aviation is. And it's not going to be a quick return. It's not an, a return on investment of two or a, a five-year flip or something. It's very long-term. It, it's well over a, a decade in many cases. And the, the finish line, the, the costs just always seem to go up and up towards certification and, you know, getting these things into production. So I don't think they all had the full story of, of how tumultuous, um, and aviation investment and something so, so new, you know, novel propulsion devices, uh, novel, um, uh, automation, um, not novel propulsion, um, in, in areas where no infrastructure exists as far as, um, charging or rooftop landing or even air, airspace infrastructure. So there is just a, a lot of what ifs in there with investors pouring money in. And to your point, yes, absolutely. They, the investors are, withdrawing a little bit. And it's not so much that they've been soured on the eVTOL concept, although they are probably getting a little education as they go along here. But it's more that with interest rates having risen, 
there's just better places to park capital and, and make a return for far less risk than aviation. So while some of these EV tall and novel concept manufacturers um, got, got a good head start, there was capital. I think going forward into the new year and, and beyond, um, those companies will spend their initial allotment and will have a lot of difficulty uh, finding the next round. Um, an example of that of, of not too long ago wasn't in eVTOL, but you recall the supersonic jet manufacturer, um, Arion, who suffered the same thing at about the same time as investors were losing interest. They made great progress. They were further along than anyone else in a civil supersonic program. Um, but those programs only go at the speed of cash. <laughs> They're at the point where they had to make a significant uh, raise again. And it didn't materialize and they had a uh, close up shop. Great point there about general aviation in, in general is not a mass transportation process. And I think that's a lesson we learn often. Maybe it'd be fun if it were. But uh, another investment story to me that has flown under the radar a little bit, but is possibly related to some of this environment is the, the possible IPO of Cirrus in Hong Kong. This was first uh, sort of floated in the summer. Uh, and I'm interested, particularly in your perspective, you have a Series 7 license. You tried to organize U.S. investors to outbid uh, China for the company back in 2011. So you know this story going back a long way. What do you think is going on here with this possible Cirrus IPO? Well, the way I've understood it is the, the margins that Cirrus is producing or you know, being able to make on their um, financials is around 10% profit. Uh, versus 15% for someone like a Cessna. And it's said they need to raise funds to improve their production capacity and efficiency just to get up there um, closer with a Cessna. So best best I can tell, that's the reason for, for going public and raising more capital. Cirrus is one of many U.S. aviation companies that ha had to take on foreign investors going back a long time in their case. More recently, Continental, Diamond, Piper, you can add a lot to that list. Why do you think American investors in general are so reluctant to buy GA companies? Uh, it goes back to the return on investment. Um, they're looking for a, a quick turn and they really don't have the patience, nor is it in their investing mandate to hang out for 10 years to see how things go. Um, the biggest boogeyman to investors is the uncertainty of certification and having someone like the FAA involved where it can be a, a wild card, whether it passes or not, or if it, if it can, what's required to, to get it there. So, um, and any highly regulated industry, um, can have a, a little, um, trouble trying to invite outside investment. It's interesting. You mentioned the, you know, Cirrus doing an IPO. Um, th those that follow may have noticed that they've listed or, or planned to list on the Hong Kong stock exchange, not on the U S stock exchange. And, Folks might ask, you know, why, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they just list domestically here? After all, Cirrus is produced in the U.S. Um, but we have to kind of go through the pedigree of Cirrus to understand that, to know that it was bought by um, Kega, which is the general aviation segment of uh, uh, China, China's aviation industry. Um, however, Kega is, uh, is owned by the, the next one up the ladder called AVIC, which is a state military enterprise um, who has been flagged for sanctions, um, you know, be, because of their connection to the military. So it would be very difficult 
um, in the U.S. because of regulations and auditing standards um, to, to have that listed on the local exchanges here. Um, you know, state-owned enterprises aren't going to, um, you know, put up with audits and inspections because they, they consider it a national security concern. So that's kind of why they went over to, to Hong Kong. Um, that's not to say Cirrus isn't, you know, a, a product I aspire to, and I think most of your audience would agree. It's, uh, you know, best of breed, best of class, and we, we don't really think of um, ownership when, when we're you know, dreaming of the next Cessna we can hopefully, I'm, I'm sorry, Cirrus we can get into. Um, but that, that's the fact of the matter. And they took a little bit of risk by going public like that because it sort of reminds the public of that fact at a time when U.S.-China relations aren't so great. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that play out. I, uh, I agree with you. They make a fantastic airplane. And I know some U.S. pilots like to complain about uh, the, the foreign investment. And I think uh, my answer would be, no U.S. investors have stepped up typically, so maybe there's something we need to do better in telling the story of GA or, or running businesses that are more attractive to investors. I don't think it's uh, out of ignorance that they're not investing. I agree. Brian, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to ask you about your journey as a Rusty pilot. Introducing the first premium apparel brand made for pilots and aviation enthusiasts. AeroWear combines modern performance fabrics with tasteful aviation styling, so you can show your love of airplanes whether you're at the office, on the golf course, or in the cockpit. Thoughtful details like UPF 30 sun protection and hidden sunglasses holders are perfect for active lifestyles. Visit AeroWear.co to shop the complete selection of golf shirts, button-down shirts, hats, and more. That's AeroWear.co. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We are back with Brian Foley, who earned his private pilot license at 17, but like many pilots, had to eventually take a break from flying, uh, in his case, when he started a business. Brian, you are now getting current again after 15 years as a rusty pilot, but from what I understand, you're not doing just a flight review and calling it a day. Tell us about your plan. So I'm, I'm definitely in rusty pilot, and, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm probably seized. <laughs> I'm going to need a lot of PB <laughs> blaster to get me moving again. Um, but I'm maybe, I, I don't know if there's a term for it, but I'm a, a low time, long term time pilot. Yet, yes, I've been flying for 50 years, but over those 50 years, I've accumulated 400 hours, which, um, breaks down to about eight, eight hours a year. But of course, as, as you mentioned, I have taken, you know, the last decade and a half off. Um, the last regular flying I did, um, was back in 2006 when I earned instrument rating and started my own business. And the intent was, hey, now I have a instrument rating. I can conduct business, you know, fly around the local area. Um, but being based in the Northeast, most of my business um, carried me overseas or to the West Coast or, you know, Texas, Chicago. There's really nothing nearby here. Um, so I didn't have a big justification um, um, to keep things moving, especially when I was investing in the new business as I went on. Um, so that had to take, take a pause. Um, so more recently, I'm just in a position now where I consider can consider getting it going again. Um, I don't plan on making business justification this time. It would be you know purely recreational and maybe traveling around a little bit uh, leisurely. Um, so now's the right time um, where I could uh, move move forward and um, do what was needed to 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 get current again. Um, 
for for your listeners that might be in a in a similar position, um, for, first I I encourage you not to rush it or or jump into something you know you're not prepared to to do right. Um, you you want to you know go, go about it the right way. Um, what I learned is going along, and some of you younger pilots or current pilots will kind of you know laugh as we go along here, but um, you know I, I didn't you know for, first you have to do a little research on how to get a medical. Um, it's not not done the way it, it has been. There might be a simpler way um, if if you're a, a younger rusty pilot um, through some new new methods, especially if you're flying a, a sport airplane. Um, but I discovered, uh, you know, my situation. I had to go through a full um, class three medical, and even that's not done the same way. You have to go online ahead of time. Um, there's an FAA site for you to put in all your um, you know medical records before you get checked out. Um, so I went through that and get, got that done just, just as a, f- a first line, even before I searched, um, for a flight school. But, you know, rather than just getting another BFR, in fact, I think I'm running out of, uh, places for endorsements BFR in the BFR in the back <laughs> of my logbook. Um, you know, I wanted to, to make this sort of interesting, um, rather than just, you know, getting current in a 172 or, or warrior rental again. So I'm doing two things. First, I, I got my BFR out of the way um, in a 172. Um, that that was interesting because my last regular flying was done in a Piper back in 06. My last regular flying in a Cessna was 172 was even before that, like in the 97, 98 timeframe. So it, it, it took a little bit of rejiggering to, you know, remember the layout and get, get comfortable in the cockpit. Um, don't, don't think you're necessarily get your BFR flying done in the first shot. Um, it took, took me two times. Um, by, but by the end of that, I was hitting the numbers. I was comfortable. I, I was at home in the cockpit and you'll just know, um, when you reach that point, but I didn't want to stop there and just go back to renting 172s. I thought I'd raise the bar a little bit and I'm going to try, um, to earn my multi-engine, um, rating, while I'm at it, the, the same flight school where I got, um, you know, back in currency with the VFR also does multi-engine training. So, uh, this Wednesday I'll be getting, uh, you know, behind the yoke on that and, and getting a good, um, talking to, I imagine. Um, one thing I felt as I started coming back to this is it can be a little overwhelming, um, for the new pilot from a couple perspectives. Um, first, if you haven't learned, and this is going way back, the, the new airspace classifications, um, don't be intimidated by that. There's lots of, uh, YouTube, um, channels you can go to, to see the differences. Um, you don't, if, if you choose to get an iPad or, you know, you know, for flight or another good, um, program like that to help you with flying, don't, don't feel you have to read the manual from page one to page 695, you know. You just get comfortable with the program if you decide to use one um, by looking up weather at an airport you're taking off from and then just taking it to the next step. Try doing a flight plan from there. Don't don't think you have to know everything at once. And in fact, you don't need an iPad. If you're more comfortable ordering your, um, you know, subscriptions of VFR charts from Sporties so you have, uh, you know, New, New York, Detroit, and the latest Washington one that you can fold out in the cockpit, that's still okay. Um, if that's how you're comfortable. Um, but I'd encourage you to look at some other alternatives as well. I, I was also concerned about having an ADS-B um, in, so I knew where other traffic was, but 
Fortunately, I didn't have to buy that right away because the flight school I'm renting from um, has that installed in the airplanes already. Um, I would encourage you to consider getting a nice noise-canceling headset. If you don't have one already, that'll make a world of difference to understanding communications. And don't be overly concerned um, with the new GPSs. I call them new. They've been around for decades now. But but don't feel you have to learn, you know, a Garmin uh, GPS, every single function and and you know, Easter egg that's buried in there. Just, just learn, you know, how to push direct and see where we're going. Learn to maybe make a, you know, a simple flight plan and you work into it. You don't have to know it all from, from day one. So don't let that be a factor from keeping you back as well. Um, but not, nonetheless, I'm, I'm moving forward. Um, one, one, one newfangled thing that, that did catch me during the B, BFR that I didn't expect was I think it's called an, an, an EFIS in the 172 where they take the primary flight displays such as the, you know, artificial horizon, your airspeed, altitude, and they have it on a screen now. Um, but that's great. It got, got rid of the vacuum system, which I was never a fan of. Um, but for some reason, the, the speed tape, you know, to, to show how fast you're going, for some reason, my brain was just wired to, to, to push down on the yoke to make it go one way and pull back on another as soon as we took off. So after we rotated, I was quickly doing 90 knots at about 200 feet, thinking I was chasing the tape <laughs> the right way. Um, but it's a quick quick recalibration, and I was fine after that. Those are the kinds of new things that the rusty pilot could um, walk into. Your advice to take it one step at a time is is maybe obvious, but I th I see people overlook that a lot, and it, it's so true. Especially a lot of things you can do uh, at home on your couch now. You can play with four flight, as you said. You can do a lot of learning without being in the airplane. Even a lot of uh, avionics these days have home simulators and iPad app, or maybe something on your computer. There's a lot of value in that training you do before you get to the airplane. And yeah, just take it one step at a time. You don't have to master every last in intricacy on your first flight back. So. Great advice. Brian, we always like to finish our episodes with a ready-to-copy segment. This is where I throw out some questions on a wide variety of topics, and you give me your quick answer. So I'm going to put you on the spot for some predictions here. Are you ready to copy? We're ready to go. Are we closer to the beginning or closer to the end of the pilot shortage in aviation? We're in the middle. And the, the, the reason for that is um, the airlines are Pay, paying well enough now where it's attracting um, a wider audience. Uh, the 1,500-hour requirement is still causing a little bit of a pickle. And I, if there's time, I'll explain why that's happened, actually. Um, but nonetheless, in the next uh, couple of years, those that are pursuing flight training, I encourage you to keep going full speed, and it'll, it'll be a, a very attractive job for you at the end of it. Let's talk about sustainability a little bit. A lot of headlines here. And first, sustainable aviation fuel. I saw recently a report in 2022, production of SAF skyrocketed to 16 million gallons. And yet that is a rounding error compared to the 15 billion gallons or so of Jet A produced every year. So is the glass half full or half empty on SAF? Uh, I got to say SAF is uh, half empty. It, it's a long way from becoming reality to be made in the kind of volume that's needed. And unless there's, uh, you know, a, a, this big stick approach from the government saying you must use it or some kind of a, a 
a tax credit if you do use it. Um, just the cost of it is going to be very prohibitive and not uh, workable from a business standpoint. How about electric airplanes? Cessna bought Pipistrelle in 2022. So will the next generation of flight school airplanes be electric? That's exactly where electric will start and makes the most sense is in the flight school environment where you're not far from the airport to recharge and range isn't a, a, a big consideration. Um, but even so, there has to be a business proposition on how you're going to save money or make money by switching to electric. J just by switching to electric doesn't... Um, do it from a business standpoint. So the numbers have to work. Um, one thing that irritates me a little bit about the switch to electric is, is here, here we're going through these great changes in aviation to adopt to electric. Um, people might not know, but today in the U.S., the electric grid is powered 20% um, by coal. And I believe the other 40% by natural gas. So 60% of the thrust that that electric airplane is making still is fossil fuel, and in fact, 20% coal. So I, um, you know, it, it, it's basically, um, you know, 20% coal trainers that are going out there right now, even though they're not leaving a, uh, you know, a, any kind of smoke or, um, you know, visible exhaust. Let's move even further out. There's a lot of talk about hydrogen. Seems like maybe particularly in Europe, they're excited about hydrogen. Forgetting when we'll see it, where do you think we'll see the first practical application of hydrogen in aviation? So here we go again, um, switching to hydrogen because it's not a fossil fuel. Um, but today, 90% plus of hydrogen is produced using natural gas. So again, we're making a non-fossil fuel out of fossil fuel. So it, with loss of efficiency when you, when you do that. Um, so maybe you're even using more fossil fuel to make this replacement. Um, it, you know, hi hydrogen is one of those things, again, that's, uh, a, a lot of hurdles and challenges to get there, you know, storing it cryogenically, um, getting it distributed, um, ha having room in the airplane for a, a tank that size to, to do that. Um, it's going to be a slow go. So I think the first use will be on demonstrators to show that it can be done, which is being done today. Um, but there's not a, a super practical first use that I can think of, although there's a lot of uh, companies trying to move in that direction. Um, Airbus is one of them that says they have some goals and plans to, to uh, use more hydrogen um, in the future, but I'm not so sure if that's grandstanding or an, an achievable goal within their um, time frame. More predictions. How many eVTOL fleets will be operating in 2030? So I'm talking, you know, NetJets or Uber style fleets where at least in a large city, I can go downtown and get on an eVTOL and take it to the nearest airport. eVTOLs, e e e um, with the investors uh, le leaving in droves that I mentioned earlier, we'll see a day of reckoning. The, the thing is, some of these programs may have folded up already, but you're not going to know. They're not going to put out a press release. They're not going to put something on their um, homepage saying we're out of business now. They're always going to leave it open to investors if they want to come forward. But show me the business case, how these eVTOLs will be paid for when you're only carrying, you know, three or four passengers a pop. You know, there's a lot of uh, upfront capital required to to buy these things. Um, hopefully it'll be, a, and surely there'll be maintenance costs over time. Um, 
you know, to help recoup some of this cost, but I haven't seen numbers that convince me to say it's a good business case to go forward with these. Um, the large scale orders from the airlines you may have seen, I think that's a little virtue signaling so that if they're ever cornered on their um, emissions, they can say, hey, may, maybe so, but we have these great plans for the future and this is how we're addressing it, whether that's realistic or not. Um, so I, I think we'll see, um, actually, the, the, the first use of eVTOLs, um, particularly automated uh, to some degree, in the cargo markets and military market first, not, not so much um, in, in the civil. Um, but essentially, someone will make the case and maybe make the numbers work on a unlimited scale um, near a city until there's an event, you know, like a Pan Am, um, you know, building disaster. And then that'll change the whole um, calculus on, you know, the air taxi and urban areas. All right. One more prediction, then maybe we'll turn to happier topics. You <laughs> mentioned supersonic. So I have to ask you about supersonic. Will we ever see a supersonic business jet? Only if the military gets behind it and says, hey, we need, you know, some something beyond a fighter that can go supersonically that we can throw stuff in um, or, or, or carry a contingent of people somewhere that don't have to be in you know, pressure suits and, uh, you know, certified in the centrifuge, that sort of thing. Um, but until then, the way the environmentalists are coming after civil aviation, um, it, it'll be very difficult. Even if you have the alibi that all we're going to do is burn SAF, um, it still won't fly when we talk about, you know, contrails and, and other emissions um, at altitude. All right. An aesthetic question for you. Are three-engine Falcons the best, or are we allowed to like two-engine Falcons? I think you have to ask Falcon on that. Of course, I was there for, for many years. And um, two quick stories there. Of course, the, the, the marketing version um, was we'd tell a customer, hey, over the dark Atlantic, in the middle of winter, you lose an engine. Do you want two still turning, or do you just want one? So that was one thing. But I was actually in on the, the the discussion of the Falcon 7X, which is a two-engine um, big cabin jet, which followed the 900X, EX, um, 900 series, I should say. Um, but we had the discussion. Should that 7X be a three-engine, um, like the, 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 the Falcon 900, or should we just go to two? And even though two engines were capable on that, we went with three just to differentiate from the other guys out there, the Gulfstream and the... And the Know, global express guys so instead of just being another generic two-engine airplane uh, the decision was made to go with three on that one another aesthetic question maybe uh you're back to your days at boeing where you worked on the 757 if i'm not mistaken uh, an airplane that many people consider the best flying airliner of the last 50 years and much mourned since it went out of production are they right or are we just forgetting some of the flaws in the 757 there's uh, some critics that say they should have held on to that tooling and done the same thing to that airplane as they did with the 737, putting on these new 20% more efficient engines. Instead, that tooling was supposedly scrapped, so now they have to start with a brand new clean sheet design um, called the NMA or new, new uh, mid-sized aircraft. Um, so unfortunately, they have to um, you know, start from zero again in that same category. Um, I'll have to tell you about flight tests. That was um, 
just a, a great thing for a young, yeah, 17 year old pilot that graduated aerospace engineering school. That was my first job where I got to go and beat up on airliners. And I remember one particular story in particular where we were up um, certifying on a flight test, the 757. It hadn't gone to the public yet, still, still working with the FAA on it. And part of that effort was to build the engine restart envelope for windmill starts. So what his flight test had to do was go up and prove it. We'd go up and shut off an engine at a certain altitude and go to a certain airspeed. And after the engine had cooled for five or 10 minutes, um, just throw the fuel back to it. And hopefully that windmill would get it going again. And you'd, you'd start up with a clean start. You, you couldn't try to start it right away because that would end up in what's called a hot start and you'd have to shut it down before you melted it pretty much. So we had been up there for hours, just turning down one engine, off one engine, waiting five, 10 minutes, getting to the right airspeed combo with the altitude and putting the fuel back to it hour after hour, turning down off one engine, turning it back on, turning off the other engine, turning it back on. So we had been cruising with one engine off, it was time to relight it again to show the FAA that it would relight in that envelope. And the pilot reached over, grabbed the switch, and turned the other engine off. So now we are a two-engine <laughs> out glider in the 757, which is definitely flight test pilot um, territory. Um, what the pilot immediately did was first set up his best glide speed, just like you, Cessna and Piper pilots. Uh, we were over the Cascades at the time. He got it pointed away towards more level ground. And then the moment of truth, um, the pilot reached over to the air, air engine that had been cooling down for a while. We weren't sure if it was inside the envelope where it would start or not. We certainly couldn't start the one we just shut down because it was too hot still. He lifted the lever and you could hear that nice rumble come back up and a breath of, uh, you know, a sigh of relief from everyone on board. Um, it was curious that the air traffic control shortly after we recovered came back to us and said, you know, Boeing 757, you know, you're out of the altitude block we gave you and heading a different direction outcome. And without losing a beat, the pilot said, well, we had to avoid some clouds. So that's kind of where it was left <laughs> off many moons ago. Oh, that's fantastic. That's real flight testing right there. Brian, we always end our podcast with the same question. You have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Well, I'll find that out on um, Wednesday this week. I'll be flying a Seneca 2 and I'm already reading the pilot's operating handbook for the third time. And I don't think I'm going anywhere special, probably just the practice area and, and uh, hopefully sticking a couple landings shortly thereafter. Brian, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, John. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion.